If you are hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. found the liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. So on today's episode, I'm going to be talking to my cousin David Parker on the 1859 essay by John Stuart Mill entitled On Liberty. And David is the host or one of the hosts of the Canadian Story podcast, as well as my co-host on my other podcast, Really True Fiction. So I think it seems just entirely appropriate that he happens to be the... uh, even though Danica helped me with the first episode. This was the first uh, long-form conversation I had, and I think it's just fun because he's my co-host on the other podcast. And the reason we wanted to talk about On Liberty is that I kind of feel like it's the bedrock philosophical text on liberalism. And John Stuart Mill is kind of the OG liberal. He's always the one that gets uh, brought up in the internet world as the paragon of the classic liberal. And at the danger of making that a stereotype, I think it's true. I read On Liberty several times before recording for this podcast, and I couldn't recommend it more highly to any listener, even though John Stuart Mill is a man of his time, in a sense, in how he's writing in a Victorian style about the world. David and I address that a little bit, and I think it in no way takes away from the ideas within his essay. It is a bit of a long essay, though. It's about 100 pages. So if you are not up for that, at least hopefully this episode can give you a start. David and I talk about some of his contemporary feelings on liberty, as well as some of my own. Um, we try to apply some of the ideas within On Liberty into some of the modern context, particularly around Canada's handling of the pandemic. And just try to reiterate some of the main ideas from the essay, because I feel like the freedom of opinion and freedom of thought and freedom of speech, uh, this essay is the best articulation of that as a philosophical principle to be extended to all peoples, as well as kind of collapsing back on the idea of humans being fallible, thus always needing to be able to Uh, use their opinions. Now, in the essay itself, there's a lot of real-life examples John Stuart Mill uses, so I would recommend reading it again. So, just before we get to the episode, if you are enjoying The Liberal Soul or are interested in any of these ideas, if you could subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use for your podcast, that would be great. If you use uh, Apple Podcasts, if you would leave a rating or a review, that's a really good way to help new people find the show and help it grow. Uh, There's a Facebook page you can join, The Liberal Soul, 
as well. Uh, if you want to send an email, you can send an email to theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. So without further ado, I bring you my cousin David Parker and our conversation on the 1859 essay on liberty by John Stuart Mill. So today I have the immense pleasure to give to all of you a splendiferous guest. (laughs) (laughs) I have joining me today, David Parker, who among many other superlatives also happens to be my cousin. Hi, David. Hello, and your and your co-host on another podcast. Yes, 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 yes. As you, dear listener, maybe you don't know, but hopefully you do. Years ago now, I thought of a different podcast called Really True Fiction. So if you are admiring of the dulcet tones and euphony in David's <laughs> uh, beautiful voice today. There are, there are hundreds of hours of, of that with much laughter between Luke and myself. Exactly. Books and movies we love so much. Exactly. So, yes, we have many, 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 many episodes of really true fiction you can go find. But anyway, today I invited David on to be one of the first, or the first, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see when this one comes out. Whichever one comes out. Yeah. <laughs> For this episode, because as you'll know if you've listened to the first episode I did, part of the liberal soul is an interest in liberal philosophy, the history of liberal philosophy, and its connection both to the intellectual history of our culture and other cultures, as well as how it plays out in the world today. And so I couldn't really think of a better beginning text than John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. No. So David, I was going to ask, had you read this before? Yes, I had. But when I first time I read it, I was only about 13. So that was a long time ago. Yeah, I, I, well, I, got, I went on like a John Locke, John Stuart Mills, uh, a huge Burke kick when I was like right. 12, 13. So oh. yeah, that was kind of what informed my philosophy of conservatism, I would say. Okay. But interesting. I can't say that like when you read things when you're 12 or 13, like they stick with you, but you don't have the details down. And it's, it's just kind of an underlying feeling towards the subject. Oh. So it's fair to say in the intervening almost 20 years you have a slightly different <laughs> mindset yeah, well, and take. i would say that i probably just have more uh places to put information right like yeah it's that whole tim urban idea of the tree right and the tree grows and as it grows like to get more branches you need a thicker trunk up so base a base knowledge right yeah and i don't didn't have any of that right i was i was 13 so i don't i think you just can't remember things as well when you don't have anything to associate them to yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. I would say I read it again, um, obviously, for this, even though I'd taken notes on it about four or five months ago in kind of mental preparation of knowing that this would be an early episode of The Liberal Soul. And I <laughs> I think I've read it about 10 times now. And yet, every time I read it, I feel... John Stuart Mill seems to write with a style like, I just don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's very much well, I mean I think I think that's kind of his whole point, right? He's like, No, I'm eccentric. I, I don't really care what anyone else thinks about what I'm saying. <laughs> this is what I believe to be true. And and you know, arguably whether you know, who said that quote, you know, the uh therefore the the future of mankind depends on insane men. Something along those lines. You know what right. I'm talking about? Like basically it's like, you know, only the stat the status quo can only be disrupted by kind of crazy people 
And I mean, John Stuart Mill is not crazy. Like he obviously he's very wise, but like in his time, that all sounded nice. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, there's lots to say about, about him, I guess. So yeah, it's, I mean, I guess I'm just, I bring it up to say I've read this several times and yet every time I read it, there's like a section I forget about because yeah, even, that, that you're reminded of. Yeah. Cause even though it's called an essay, this has got to be the longest essay ever. It's like it's not a short essay at all. Depending on your <laughs> publication, it's like around a hundred pages, and so I think obviously it'd be impossible for you and I to hit every single point that he makes. Yeah, though, exactly. Well, I will say this though: there were reading it this most recent time, a couple days ago. There were some sections in it because I have as you you'll be able to see, but the listener can. I have a little copy here from a Dover publication and I've read it several times. So I have different parts underlined from like years ago. So it's always <laughs> right. funny to like see the part that you read years ago. And those ones are generally the parts I remember a little bit better, but there were a few sections this time where I was like, Oh man, that's like a little bit more idiosyncratic about education or how people might get kind of comfortable in their opinions as opposed to like malicious in them that kind of stuff is really interesting even though i don't think it's like the main thrust of his best points i got a lot more out of this read out of the kind of more tangential points he made well that's what makes a masterpiece right is the ability to to bring something new out into your reader every time like Mm. so, so many books you couldn't read 10 times right but i mean Think of Harry Potter, even like people love to reread that because there's so much depth in it. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, this is even more for a, for someone who loves philosophy, for someone who loves thinking about thought, right? right. This is a masterpiece mm-hmm. because, because thought, you know, then dictates action, right? And when you get into that kind of zone, mm-hmm. uh, like you realize, oh, these thoughts are powerful, and this is the distilled truth <laughs> of a philosopher, right? Yeah, uh, he's thought these th- these things through quite deeply, but. but I would say, like, uh, he, he definitely has an agenda, right? Mm. Sure. And, that, and that, it's a good agenda. I'm not saying it's a bad one. I, I think it's the most important agenda of all, but, like, he's directing his thoughts towards describing the benefits of liberty, right? Well, I mean, there's no... Benefit cannot be in any way accidental, considering he's also considered one of the main fathers of utilitarianism. in in, uh, the history of philosophical thought. So before we dive in, I'll I'll just note that for any of you who who doesn't know, John Stuart Mill was a 19th century British philosopher famous for this essay on liberty as well as utilitarianism. And the two other things that come to mind that I know was part of his career was he wrote a really amazing essay on the vindication of the rights of women. So in a very, very substantial sense, he's one of the first really great feminists. He and his romantic partner, uh, Harriet Taylor, she was, I mean, there's a whole biography towards the two of them, but she was such a alive, intelligent, great companion for him that he just couldn't be denied her intelligence, right? So, Well, I mean, didn't he dedicate On Liberty to her? I don't know. He, he might have. It may be the first edition or something. And the other thing is he wrote a lot about also on public education and educating yes, the populace. Yes. So those are like the four main things that he's known for. But I, I think this is, I'll put it, it's like the gold standard of the philosophical and rigorous, rigorous philosophical defense of liberty. Obviously, yes, yes. obviously, you get writings from like John Milton 
and you get writings from Thomas Paine, which I will never sneer at. Those two gentlemen are great in this tradition, but I think John Stuart Mill has to be the gold standard on this. There's a reason he's still kind of held up as the founder of the philosophic tradition. Yeah, and On Liberty was published, first published in 1859, which as a very fun coincidence was the same year that uh, The Origin of Species was published. <laughs> so yes, both The Origin true. of Species and On Liberty. So I was like, that's a pretty good year for intellectual output. <laughs> yeah, in, in and, the, and the history world. of mankind, that's a, a banner year, really. Yeah, and so then I thought we can go through like each section. So the the essay itself yeah. has, has five sections. Introdu- the introduction, the second part, which is on the liberty of thought, and then the sec- the third part, which is on the, what is it, like liberty of individuality. The fourth section is the limits of the authority of society over the individual. And then the shortest one at the end there is on like practical applications of his philosophy. And I wanted to obviously start with the introduction. There's some really great sentimental swooning lines around freedom and such. But there's a part I'll read. Maybe I'll read it now just to set the stage because there's like there's a part of the liberal soul that I'm trying to cultivate is this super important connection that I think is often not taken into account, especially when the discussion is at the level of the political, which is on the connection of psychological freedom to freedom, freedom, let's say, right? Right. Or like the important of um, being able to kind of follow your own path or go your own way, to quote the great American philosophical group Fleetwood Mac. So, so here's what here's I'm going to read a paragraph of the introduction, just to set the stage because this is where my mind really comes from, and even beginning to think about why I would why like this is a first episode for this podcast. Why? And I want to set it with this stage. So this is um, in my edition, page four of the introduction. John Stuart Mill writes. Society can and does execute its own mandates, and if it issues wrong mandates instead of right, or any mandate at all in things which it ought not to meddle with, it practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since, though not usually upheld by such extreme penalties, it leaves fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul itself. And so wow. that's like my kind of framing yeah, I, of that this. Was, that was not one that I put picked out myself in this reread, but oh, see, that is that's what it's all about. Yeah, and well, he's a great writer. I mean, to to make you feel it that way, it's great writing. But also, like this is what I this is how the stage I want to set for this talking about this essay is that John Stuart Mill understood something that I think. I understand too, but it's not easy to articulate because it's not well articulated in our culture. Is that there are many kinds of unfreedom, not just political oppression. Obviously, yes, that's like yes. that's the easiest one to point out. But philosophically, liberty can be liberty from not just the police or the politicians, but liberty from your neighbors who don't like you or think that you're weird or that you're doing something that is taboo of the customs of the time that you're in. Yeah. And so that's kind of what's so resonant to me in this essay is that he's coming from a first person perspective of what we're even talking about when we're talking about liberty not a nominal form of liberty but like a first first person vital form of liberty if that makes sense yeah well yeah because it's uh, you know the the ideological idea of liberty 
can often be construed, but like the individual idea of liberty is the one we need to uphold. And this is why I say often, like we can't focus on group rights. It's just the wrong direction to go because as soon as it becomes about groups, then now you're going to have groups that have more power or less power. It has to be about the freedoms of the individual. That's where freedoms have to begin and end because if it becomes about groups, then, then it becomes a power struggle. But like, any one individual who's constantly advocating for individual freedom will never be able to be a tyrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think this is so crucial because, it, well, A, in that introduction, Mill also talks about how the freedom often ends up being the freedom of the majority opinion to oppress the minority opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, left to their own devices, that can happen in, in a civil sense or a or a cultural sense or a social sense not just in a political sense so that's obviously a big part but focusing at any level above the individual fundamentally robs people of something like the autonomy of their conscience and their consciousness any person in a group that might be pertained as a minority or a majority if you know their group, you already know their opinion, which is a clearly a mistake in what both experience of the world tells us and yes. and the point that Mill is making is like, well, no, there can be very many different kinds of groups. Now, obviously, he's writing 19th century England. He's talking very much mostly about European and American context, which is something I want to talk about at the end. But nevertheless, he's pointing out that that it's the soul that gets enslaved in non-liberty just as much as, mm, let's say, your like, uh, enfranchisement or something like that. Yeah, or yeah, any number of things, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so then the last thing to read in the introduction, which will be a good segue into part two. So John Stuart Mill lays out basically the three principles of liberty, what they consist of and what he's going to spend the rest of the essay defending. Here's Mill writing, This then is the appropriate region of human liberty. It comprises first the inward domain of consciousness, demanding liberty of conscience in the most comprehensive sense, liberty of thought and feeling, absolute freedom of opinion and sentiment on all subjects, practical or speculative, scientific, moral, or theological. The liberty of expressing and publishing opinions may seem to fall under a different principle, since it belongs to that part of the conduct of an individual which concerns other people. But being almost of as much importance as the liberty of thought itself and resting in great part on the same reasons, it's practically inseparable from it. Secondly, the principle requires liberty of taste and pursuits, of framing the plan of our life to suit our own character, of doing as we like, subject to such consequences as may follow, without impediment from our fellow creatures, so long as what we do does not harm them, even though they should think of our conduct foolish, perverse, or wrong. <laughs> Thirdly, uh, That's my favorite for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thirdly, from this liberty of each individual follows the liberty within the same limits of combination among individuals, freedom to unite for any purpose not involving harm to others, the persons combining being supposed to be of full age and not forced or deceived. <laughs> freedom of association. So in a nutshell, it's freedom of opinion, which I, by the by, I think is a better term than freedom of speech or even freedom of expression. Right. It's freedom of yeah. opinion because... Really, that's what gets censored. Second yeah. one is freedom of individual pursuits. And the third one is the freedom to associate with whoever we want to based on voluntary information. Yes. So that's exactly. that's kind of the main thrust of the whole essay. So then the biggest section of the book is part two, or liberty on thought and discussion. And this is 
where he defends freedom of opinion, the freedom to think differently. What struck you of that section, freedom of opinion? Well, uh, I mean, like, honestly, I we're in this phase of craziness in Canada right now where people are literally being censored for their opinion on the lockdowns. There are people who are all they're doing is saying they think the lockdowns are wrong, who have been put on no-fly lists. And these are private citizens. They're not public office holders. They're not, you know, they're, it's, it's crazy, right? And it's all being done in the name of public health, which is, you know, arguably the religion of Canada since we love our, you know, single-payer healthcare system so much. And I'm just shocked and kind of appalled that we let, that, that John Stuart Mill writes this, right? And it becomes the foundation of Western civilization as we know it, arguably the foundation of the abolition movement, like at the founding of America. It's, it's these ideas, right, that are, yeah. that are percolating in the human zeitgeist, the spirit of history, right? And that brings the most wealth and prosperity and, and increase in human happiness in the history of mankind, that idea, right, of freedom of the individual. And now we're over a pandemic stripping the rights of our citizens. In Alberta, if you want to go camping on the long weekend, they're going to have drones flying over the campsites so that they can come arrest you. This is not a free country anymore. And we as individuals do not have liberty. So it was kind of hard to read, to be honest, because it, it just reminded me how far we've fallen. Like where, where you can't even express, it's almost like it's a thought crime now. And here's how it's a thought crime, right? If you don't get vaccinated, you're going to have to have a, pa- a vaccination passport to leave the country. Is that going to be a legal requirement? Yeah. So, so think about it this way. What if you are opposed to vaccines? I'm not saying I am. I'm not necessarily. But what if that is your strongly held belief? That's an opinion. That's a thought, right? A whole structure of thought. And this is what he's defending, right? It's the ability to have a structure of thought. Now, you might think that these people are idiots. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. That's not the point. Mm. You're literally saying that we are going to limit your liberties because of something you think. (laughs) Well, it sounds a little bit like you're skipping to part three of the essay. Well, sort of, (laughs) sort of. Not really, because the the reason that it's important to defend freedom of thought is because of what happens. You're right. I mean, he's talking about the state overreaching. But this is what I guess what I'm saying to everyone is this is why it's important. Sure, right? sure, sure. He's well, you know what? He gives three different ex- three different breakdowns of of opinion, and we because we want to modernize it. Let's use Canada during the pandemic as the example for each one. And the first one is yeah. No, there's a great line he writes here at the beginning of part two that I got to read out because this is an assertion of liberty that I think is interesting. A maybe coming from a utilitarian such as Mill, but also. Uh, again, by the by, for anyone who doesn't know, utilitarianism is the philosophy of the best thing to do is whatever has the greatest consequences for the most amount of people. But that's a very nutshell way to put it. So here's this line that is in early in the part two that is so <laughs> just funny because it's something that strikes me as so commonsensical and yet I think is a, a bitter pill maybe for some people to swallow. So here's Mill writing. If all mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one oh, person yeah. were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than if he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. 
So See, I'm talking about exactly what exactly no. So it's the, the freedom. Yeah, it's yeah. the freedom to think differently, right? It's the freedom to think differently. And then a little bit later, after what I just wrote, he writes. But the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity, as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion, still more than those who hold it. Because if the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great of a benefit, the clear perception and livelier impression of a truth with collision with its error. So there's three, yes, there's, yes. There's three sections here on freedom of opinion. He writes... The majority opinion is incorrect and the minority opinion is correct or what language he often uses, the received opinion, which means the majority or the custom or what most people think versus what the minority think. So the received opinion is wrong. The minority opinion is right. Well, we need to get truth because truth is more important. The second one is the received opinion is correct and the minority opinion isn't correct, but we still need to hear it because we get lazy and sleepy on our truths, and then we don't really know how to defend them well. Or, and he brings in, this is one of the things he brings in education, we don't know how to teach young people well, again, how we think vital truths without the collision because with... Because we have no enemy, we get soft. Yeah, and then the third one, which is the much more common one than the first two, is that both opinions have elements of the truth in them, and we need both opinions to be expressed so we can get the value out of both of them, discard the things that aren't true, and be able, in a kind of Hegelian sense, to patchwork the truth in two different perspectives or arguments. And this seems to me what politics working well is, negotiate a good next step that is minimally bad for most parties involved. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's know? all about not... It's all about not hurting things as much and as possible. And so let's let's take let's take the pandemic as an example for all three of those. So let's say we're in a situation where the lockdowns are a majority opinion of the culture. I'm not sure that's true, but let's just say it is or the received opinion. But maybe they're not maybe they're not the most efficacious way to handle this disease. Right? Yeah. And, and- well, I think this is the real... And someone needs to be able to voice that, right? Yeah, we're not talking. We're not just you, talking then, okay, yeah, you can censor the cranks or the conspiracy theorists, but what about biologists who have an opinion weighing in on the epidemiology of the disease and as well as any science behind the vaccines? Like, I just think... Or that, police officers about enforcement or nurses and teachers about frontline stuff or... And here's the thing, it's like, what bothers me the most about all of this is that it just goes to show how little people are thinking about a situation, right? Well, he's got just, passages on that in the third part as well. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right. But <laughs> what I mean is I don't think liberty of thought is something people think about much right now. Hmm. I think that's so far out of the zeitgeist conversation and we back, I want to go back to what you said because I think it's really important where you said something along the lines of when we're looking at the idea of a person having a, an opinion that's not a received opinion. Mm-hmm. Right now, but if you're not in the received opinion, you're literally ostracized in a, in a lot of different ways, right? And in the pandemic, it's like if you, don't, you hate, you want to kill people. If you think that maybe the lockdowns are bad, right? So we, 
right? And that's yeah. a thought. And they're not thinking about liberty of thought, right? They're not thinking about received. They don't even think they have the received opinion. That's not how they think about it. They think about it as this is the truth. Well, and it's become this religious approach to thinking. Well, I think uh, that's the censorship angle is so it's like unethical in one sense because it's, you know, it's just people with power censoring people without power. But also it's super counterproductive because the goal should be to figure out how to move past this pandemic, right? Like, yeah, yeah <laughs> I can't, I can't think of any political statement of your, like, it should be, no, we all don't want this to be here anymore. Like, I mean, it's kind of funny, like there, I've seen some comedy bits on YouTube of people pretending to be um, American governors figuring out how they can make the pandemic last longer. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, it's much more of the, okay, so let's say there are some interesting theories or, or hypotheses around where the virus came from, how dangerous it actually is, what are the statistics around the comorbidities, um, yeah, what that, are, what are the implications of different vaccine policies like these are just things that in a free society you need to be able to talk about because that is what thinking is you know yeah, thinking is being is, able this is what i'm trying to say luke i don't think people are being taught how to think anymore well maybe not but perhaps podcasts yes <laughs> could be a way <laughs> so i'm saying like perhaps. there are there are several shibboleths let's say that can be dispelled if we allow not just the i mean this is a this is the essence of the free speech debate and this is prometheus giving fire to all the humans not just the responsible ones right like (laughs) there's obviously going to be a lot of cranks and crazy people who deny let's say that there is such a thing as covid like maybe that's the most extreme but without allowing dissent of opinion you don't that leads into the second part you don't even know which parts of your own opinion are true if you yeah, don't allow them to I be know. challenged right because, because they're all true because then it's dogma it's yeah, dogma. exactly it, the, uh, he uses some phrasing around like it's stale uh it's dogma you fall asleep so then okay let's say the part second part is well it's actually more correct about we are right about our, the epidemiology and we are right with the lockdowns well you don't really know that it becomes an authoritarian thing unless you that's what i'm don't saying it's like, it, right it's a parent saying to their child just do it because i told you and then the third one is which is the much again always almost every time in reality is is the third case where there's truth on every side here and we need to figure out what we need to have all the facts so we can make yeah so we can actually find something closer to the truth decisions right right? and i mean obviously you're going to get into some sort of value judgment on something like this where there's going to be people who the mortality rate of covid is a good enough justification for lockdowns and for a lot of people it won't be but then there's also like relevant things to think about like down the road mental health issues down the road mental health issues but also down the road like we we haven't done we don't know what the long-term effect of covid is so there is a reasonable argument to be made that we want to minimize the people who get it even though they won't die because we don't know what the long-term effects on your lungs and your tissues are right and we want to know those things i mean this is a covid thing this isn't a john Stuart mill thing but to me one of the great like the the most bizarre sociological thing of this pandemic it's kind of happened for the first time at least in the western world in an era where like our, our general biggest framework to handle this is like whose fault is it yeah, yeah. <laughs> as opposed <laughs> as opposed to 
the more common that's received good, way good. of pandemics has been oh here it is again <laughs> more yeah, famine yeah. more or pestilence like disease yeah oh all right i guess more people are dying <laughs> yeah so the pandemic is a great example a great modern example of even though someone like john stuart mill or myself might you know or you it's not a covid denial to have a no. very frank discussion about what to do about it with exactly with everything involved. Yeah, like, I don't know. You're right. What would a referendum in Canada look like if we held one about whether or not we want drones following private citizens? I fear that it would that it would pass resoundingly. But if it did pass resoundingly, it is a democratic vote, which, by the rules of democracy, would have to be respected. Yeah. And then at least there would be a vote, I guess, <laughs> at the very least. I, yeah, I don't know. Like, is a bad law a law at all? Well, this I think... Is, like, John Stuart Mill talks about that in the very first quote you read, right? Sure, sure. It, yeah, but part of the... He writes in this section, part of the utility of, of, of a, an opinion is its truth. Because the truth right. in an opinion is part of what allows you to actually make progress. I mean, this is most manifestly true in the scientific realm, for example. Yes, right? true, true, like, true. yes, yes. A, 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 faulty a faulty method in designing an engine is just going to fall to the floor and a non-faulty one will allow you to move in a car. Like, yes, it's just, yes, it's exactly. So I think that there's a very tangible real-world parallel to make. But there's another part of this section too, not section as well, but the second section that I wanted to bring up in terms of more a philosophical, not just a not just a practical problem, is that he brings up the character of Socrates in this section. And I think this is something I've thought about lots when it comes to freedom of expression and freedom of opinion, is that arguably the two greatest figures in, in the canon of Western philosophy and social ethics are Socrates and Jesus. I think yeah, they're, they're yeah. arguably the two greatest. And what do they share in common? Society what? kills both of them. They were both put to death for what charge? What was the charge? Misleading the youth. Well, in a word, blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. They they were put to death for blasphemy. They were heretics. They were heretics. They had opinions about their society that were deemed so transgressive that they were put to death. And yet they're the characters that have the greatest resonance in the history of our scholastic and even cultural descendants. And I say that as someone who's neither worshiping of any of the Greek gods nor any of the uh, uh, Hebrew <laughs> ones either, ones. but I can yeah. recognize an idea when I see one. And the amount of new and inventive and innovative thinking that really energized the population through those two characters and the symbolism of their two. I don't know. It's weird. Like, it's just that easy for me. I see it's like, oh, they put Socrates to death for blasphemy. Well, that was stupid. There's yeah, no such thing yeah. as blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's a right, made right. up charge. Well, it's, it's a tool of the powerful to deal with their enemies. Now you've circled around this a little bit, but I want to bring this up too from the from the essay about the people who might be in <laughs> a society where censorship, this is what's so great about this. His writing is so wonderful. John Stuart Mills is here. He's talking about if censorship works, basically people not speaking their minds, 
But the price paid for this sort of intellectual pacification is the sacrifice of the entire moral courage of the human mind, a state of things in which a large portion of the most active and inquiring intellects find it advisable to keep the genuine principles and grounds of their convictions within their own breasts, and attempt, in what they address to the public, to fit as much as they can out of their own conclusions to premises, which they have internally renounced, cannot send forth the open, fearless, and logical, consistent intellects that once adorned the thinking world. And I I mean, that's a great sentiment. I'm not, I might quibble. Like, I, I wonder when there were these great intellects that once adorned the thinking world. Yeah, I wonder yeah, what era he's referring to in that. But then that is followed up with the point on the next page, which they're all related. So here he is again. No one can be a great thinker who does not recognize that as, as a thinker, it is their first duty to follow their intellect to whatever conclusion it may lead. Truth gains more even by the errors of one who, with due study and preparation, thinks for themselves than by the true opinions of those who only hold them because they do not suffer themselves to think. Not that it is solely or chiefly to form great thinkers that freedom of thinking is required. On the contrary, it is as much and even more indispensable to enable average human beings to attain the mental stature which they are capable of. There have been, and may be again, great individual thinkers in a general atmosphere of mental slavery. But there never has been, nor ever will be, in that atmosphere an intellectually active people. Where any people has made a temporary approach to such a character, it has been because the dread of heterodox speculation for a time was suspended. So that's when yes. thinkers could think. Yes. And then, thinkers could think and thinkers could speak. Yeah. Where there is a tacit convention that principles are not to be disputed, where the discussion of the greatest questions which can occupy humanity is considered to be closed, we cannot hope to find that generally high scale of mental activity which has made some periods of history so remarkable. So I wanted to connect that to one of the things I'm talking about here on The Liberal Soul, which is this concept of the highest common denominator. Because I think that that's yes, yes. what John Stuart Mill is talking about. A lot about. on really true fiction. Yeah. So of holding even just the general population to a high standard, they're their highest. Because that's something that's quite explicit for him. Is you might have some great thinkers in a arid, thoughtless culture, but you're definitely not going to have an energetic population who can think for themselves. It's just funny that he's lamenting this in 1859. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think maybe I in one sense. In one sense, we're a little bit primed by our psychological biases around like extrapolating more statistically out of media stories or what we see on the internet. True. Right? True. Like that's kind of our... Yeah, there's probably a lot of people out there that are just living quite wonderful and liberated, thoughtful lives, but they're not on social media anymore. Mm-hmm. Going back to freedom of thought and freedom of expression, freedom of opinion, he's bas- he's saying if you have a culture of censorship... Obviously, if it's state-ordained censorship, but if it's censorship that your culture is okay with, you're going to become stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just yeah. that simple. Like it won't. It the, <laughs> there's a genuine lack of utility in that, and I think that that was a a really novel insight at the time because in 19th century England intellectual life, they weren't that far removed from remembering how horrible the world was when you couldn't have really great thinkers all throughout your population to give you something new to it right Right. whereas we live in an era now where it's so taken for granted that 
every single need we I have in a day. I mean, I suffer from this too. It's like, right. think of a day. I don't have to think about the water that comes to my house to drink and shower. And I don't no. have to think about all the electricity. I don't have to think about the internet other than paying my bills so that I can talk to you. I don't have to think about anything. And yet all of the things that make my life so easy come from encouraging a culture where so many different people can participate in that culture and and invent and innovate and bring new things and new ideas and it boil, boils down to that will never happen if you censor your population because they have no incentive to become not stupid <laughs> yeah exactly i mean like the the need to survive sharpens the soul too right oh i think this is an emerson quote but it's something like in a culture that doesn't value thinking and testing of thoughts, a great thinker has nothing to do. They might as well just yeah, the, they might true. as well just look at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just one last quote here in part two I wanna finish up this section on, and I think it really captures the whole part well. So here's Mill writing again. He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good and no one may be able to refute them. But if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either opinion. <laughs> right, And right. I think if we're going to use this again for the pandemic, it's that it is possible, it, it seems maybe not totally plausible, but it is possible that stringent and kind of long-term lockdowns and, crim and, and, and fines and whatever being used on citizens is the right approach but you'll never know that unless you debate it and you'll never yeah. know that unless it's yeah. wide open so it's like it's even it's a it's a philosophical layer above the implementation right i mean to bring in another thinker in the great tradition of liberal philosophy john rawls you can think about it if like you need a veil of ignorance here like imagine you wouldn't know what side of the opinion you would fall on on lockdowns before they were implemented, you would want to make sure that that it was as fair for anyone to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, otherwise, you're falling prey to what might be, you know, philosophically described as prejudice. And that's, it's a technical way of saying it. it's not bigotry. It's exactly, although it can... You, yeah, you prejudge. Yeah, yeah, situation. exactly. I mean, this is true for people who are against lockdowns too just as much it, that's the thing like the thing that the principles apply in actuality as much to one side of a debate as the other one so i guarantee you there are lots of people who are against lockdowns who don't really know the best argument oh yeah for locking down oh, yeah they're right? just it's emotion they, it's a, yeah yeah sure. uh, i mean they they usually they they don't seem to have a hard time making it onto the news but no, no. <laughs> but they don't necessarily have the power right now as opposed to people who do have the power culturally or politically to really go through the ins and outs of deciding why this is the right thing to do so it's at a it's at a more kind of meta philosophical level of a, of a yeah, principle. Yeah, exactly. And but the, but it has practical application everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that moves us into chapter three or part three on individuality, one of the elements of well-being. And I actually just recorded a solo half-hour episode on Karl Popper's distinction between individualism and altruism. Oh, or nice. Distinction on individualism and egoism. So I'm starting to sense that one of the main themes that's going to come out, not just of this essay, but of this podcast is 
individualism and and kind of you know the same way i like to i'm i'm hoping to reclaim or restore the word liberal i don't think you can do that without kind of revitalizing the word individual or individualism and making it not the same as selfishness so in this section section three this is maybe the most not controversial exactly, but one of the things that he talks about is the liberty of the individual is if he refrains from hurting others in what concern them and merely acts according to his own inclination and judgment in things which concern himself, the same reasons which show that opinion should be free prove also that he should be allowed without, and this is the old timey word he uses, without molestation to carry his opinion into practice at his own cost. So basically yeah. that's saying if a person's not hurting someone, let them go be weird in the corner by themselves and do whatever they want. <laughs> and, and this is interesting because this is an argument against, say, my position, right? Mm. This is the this is the great, let's call it the received truth, but also a fair point. They're claiming that the people who are acting on their own individual liberty are harming people, right? Yeah. And, and, that's... and, I, and so going for the individuality, it's like, that's the real de- the, the debate around Mills, right? That that's the question he doesn't seem to have wrestled with quite enough, in my opinion. Well, he he does make reference to the fact that what we would call harm, there's actually a lot, there's dozens and hundreds of these kind of like more minor cases that is kind of the negotiation of life, I think he puts it, or the the negotiation of the affairs of life or something like that. Now, I think that's a totally fair point, David. Like, it would take a long time. It'd be a huge book to kind of philosophically arbitrate every possible example of disagreement between people over what... Well, yeah, and and that's the problem that we face, right? Because, like, I can go and say, hey, our liberties are being infringed on, and they can say, no, you're causing harm, and suddenly this is being used as like a club to beat down dissonance. Well, this is why freedom of opinion needs to trump again, because what would constitute harm to reasonable people has to be discussed. Like it just has to be right. It can't be asserted. It has to be discussed. This is why, this is why I think he built the essay this way is that these individuality precepts are based on the freedom of opinion precepts that he talked about in the the earlier chapter. Right. So like, the, the case I've always thought about, which is maybe my shows my inclination towards music is like, because the truth is most human, like the vast majority of human conflict does not go to the legal system, right? Like the no. vast majority of human conflict is figured out through reasonable negotiation, I would say. True. But it's like, okay, at what point am I harming my neighbors by playing loud music? At what time right. of night, at, at what time of night is harm the right term to use for my neighbors not being able to sleep while I have a party right. or a music, right? Yeah. Like, cause that's yeah. in, in, again, in a Hegelian sense, that's kind of a collision of rights, right? Definitely. And, and, and a society will put, that's what bylaws are for. Maybe. I don't know. Like <laughs> there's just something kind of arbitrary. Well, but it, yeah. I mean, that's the problem though, right? Isn't it? Those. Okay. Well, let's say these minor, these things that aren't agreed upon about what cause harm that aren't atrocious to, human survival like the music example i gave the right arena for dealing with that is local government and right voting right. and bylaws right and like maybe nelson has a bylaw of eight o'clock and calgary has a bylaw of 10 boohoo i moved to calgary if it really is that 
Bhavadizami, right? right? Or, or, or whatever, right? But there is a disagreement of what constitutes harm. That's yes. I think that's one of the that's one of the sicknesses of our age. Is yeah, because we, we have language. this whole liberty thing that we've been doing for a while, right? Perpetrated by John Stuart Mill. And as it's gone along, there's been more and more people like, well, radical liberty can have some pretty negative consequences, right? Like we've now agreed that causing harm to the natural environment is not a liberty that someone should have, right? But now we have an even worse discussion, which is well, what constitutes harm to the environment, right? And, and when you go down this semantic train, when I think that's why I always say you've got to err on the side of liberty in almost all circumstances, except when it would be actual violence being done. And, and there's a huge case to be made for, you know, pollution being a violence to others. So yeah. that's a, a conversation I'm willing to have. But I want that bar to be really high. Right? I want that bar of individual, like I want the harm bar to be high mm-hmm. because otherwise I don't feel like John Stuart Mill even means anything because if it's low enough, the idea, if the idea of harm is low enough, let's say microaggressions, let's say things like that. If the bar is low enough, then you don't have liberty because harm has been so elevated that we've lost and that's what's happened. Like the culture agrees that we should have liberty to sleep with who we want to, all this stuff, right? But there's a lot of now cultural orthodoxies but if you're a heretic you're done you're canceled yeah i mean it's over i agree because you're doing harm well and that's your argument (laughs) i mean mill says the freedom to swing my fist ends where your nose exists (laughs) so he kind (laughs) of he um I think he's using harm in a purely physical sense in the essay. I hope, I hope so, but I think that, that I think our culture doesn't believe that. Well, I, th- I think that you just have to go to another layer of conversation. Again, this is the perennial point. You have to go back to the freedom of people to express their opinion because someone, yes. someone can say this is harmful and then that can't be the end of the discussion. That has to be the beginning of it. And, and I agree with you. I think the a major sickness of uh, the the decay of social, emotional, and intellectual life of a culture is if they agree that something can be asserted without being talked about. Yeah. yeah. Now, once you get into the weeds, some people might feel certain kind of harms around particular ways you relate to them. And I think navigating interpersonal relationships is useful to know that kind of stuff, right? Like we don't want to unintentionally bring up a trauma for someone in our life if we don't need to yeah like this yeah. so the, there is again there's there's de- lots of babies in the bathwater of talking about harm in less and less default senses of the term harm but i also think you're right when the default setting f- should be towards that openness of opinion as opposed to assertion yes it's kind of like how i approach highest common denominator is that okay i'm gonna talk to you with an assumption that you can reach the highest levels that you can reach and i'd rather be let down that you can't as opposed to assuming you can't and not having any sort of sense that there's a great conversation to be had there with a thoughtful person yeah you know like it's just kind of like how you approach and john stuart mill in this section really relates that the consequences of not having a baseline of liberty to even begin to mentally adjudicate these problems is that you are going to have a decaying population that 
Yeah, their souls well, are going to be in prison. Well, A, like the people who are misfits and weirdos and want to do different things, they'll have enslaved souls. But also, your society will decay. <laughs> it will just yeah, decay. It won't like be that's, interesting That's anymore. kind of like social entropy. Right? Yeah. There's no, if you think about it from the form of entropy, new ideas are the new energy into the system to keep it going. Yeah, they're the burning. They're the sun. Yeah, and dogmatic assertions of received opinions are, but yeah. So like, I I think, again, I'm not gonna, as you know, I'm not gonna be standing up for microaggression. No, <laughs> I'm no, not pro microaggression. No. I'm saying <laughs> that things that constitute harm for people. This strikes me as the job of more thinkers to figure out better synonyms of the continuum. Yeah, grade one harm, grade two. Like we do degrees in our legal system, and I think that our legal system draws lines at, at more or less physical violent harms. There's obviously other things around what you say, the environment and white collar stuff, but those are like late to the game, right? Like this is a kind of yeah. evolving project around figuring out a new avenue of human abuse that we weren't aware of at one point before and what the ramifications are. Again, more to the point of John Stuart Mill, those things are only ever figured out by open discussion about them. Exactly. Right? It's the same logical point in the other direction. If um, a corporation that is massively polluting an area and killing an ecosystem and poisoning the water, which isn't that far removed in, and probably still no. happening, right? Yeah. Imagine yeah. if the corporation says, we make jobs, full stop, don't question this. Right, like that's yeah. just not in the spirit of no. of of moving forward, moving your that's culture forward. Yeah. Right. So I know you don't like the term. This is the kind of part where I think this is progressive, right? Like the idea yeah. of being able to debate your this is what builds progress. Your power, the the ability to debate the people who have the hegemony or the power or the money, is what has ever allowed progress in a country or a society ever that's it that's the only thing because status quo i mean medieval europe was the same for like 1200 years yeah, right? yeah. it's like yeah. nothing Not changed, a lot changed because yeah. because there were heritage well there was an increase in burning at the stakes so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of problems the other thing i want to i want to just bring up here and get your thoughts on because i talked a little bit about it when i talked about Karl Popper's take on individualism versus egoism is that I think part of what is important and not to be lost here is that we need an individualistic framework of supporting not just ourselves, but it also brings the best out of everyone in our society. Yeah. And and the best out of everyone brings better music, better movies, better art, better food, better better romance. Yeah, everything that existentially makes life better is underpinned by the assumption that people are free to follow their passions regardless of how obnoxious it might strike their neighbors. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and and I think I think we we see that with people who do incredible pieces of art are not normal, right? You read you know Dostoevsky, you even read about Patrick Rothfuss or even G.R.R. Martin in the, in the modern contest. They're not your conformists. They are, they're quirky and eccentric and interesting. It's like Jack Kerouac said, right? Like, the only one for me are the mad ones. Well, right? and the irony of 
quote unquote left wing politics of the modern age is that for the, m- the majority of the second half of the 20th century, anyway, the misfit individuals were the darlings of um, left of center politics. Like that's, I know, I know, but, but I also think that's partly because of how much culturally stronger conservatism was. Yeah. It was, it was, it had a hegemony for a while. Yeah. So again, (laughs) Hegel, whoever is the weaker in the culture is going to be more on the side of the, uh, yeah, the rebel individual. rousers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right, because they quote unquote speak for them. But the the examples I use are musicians, right? Like in the yeah. '90s, I think the examples I use are like uh, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails and Billy Corgan. Those are individuals. They need they're weirdos. Yes. And I remember there was so much kind of like social consternation around the kind of material in their songs and their music videos like they're making art that trounced on the sensibilities of a lot of the people in the culture well too bad right like that's actually a liberal society says well don't watch their videos right like you don't have to go out of your way to be offended by that. that that's a good point because those individuals create true art that is celebrated by other artists artists know when they see that Mm -hmm. individual thing and so we got Johnny Cash's heard of, of Nine Inch Nails, you know, a cover. Yeah. That's just paying homage to art. And what is art? It, art, it has to be individual. It isn't art if it's not. Yeah, there's a section where he says, the initiation of all wise or noble things must come from individuals, right? Like, this is fundamental. I mean, individual, I mean, I guess we don't know necessarily about Shakespeare, but like, yeah, Dostoevsky right. was an individual, or and all the all the great um, you know like all of the great directors are individuals, right? At the end of the day, the art has to be made by an artist. Yeah, and again, it, it all comes back to this central principle of liberty means the freedom for people who think differently than the norm, the people yeah. who are one or two or several standard deviations away from the norm. Now, again. Yes, we do get into the messiness of adjudicating, okay, well, when does that cross over into harm? And I think the truth is, I think that there's no good answer. There's no, or no, I'll put it to you this way. There's no final answer for all of time of what counts as harm and what doesn't. Because because people are so individual. And and it's going to change. It's going to change. And it changes. Yeah, it definitely changes. And I think the best we can do is to always have it be open to be talked about and argued for. And then if it comes down to it, if it's an important enough thing to most people, have a vote. You have yeah. a vote. And if you lose that's the democracy. vote, too bad. <laughs> but then that's the point of a democracy is that you have you don't have to live with the results of a vote forever. Yes, right, right, right. It's you can, you can you can work on the overhaul of it at some point. So Back to my music example, if I really cared about the bylaws of music at night, I could campaign against it. It'd be an uphill battle because, right. <laughs> because, because again, individual people weigh their own needs and wants and desires in an open forum. And they're like, well, your desire to have loud music all night is not that 
more is not more important <laughs> to me than my sleep, <laughs> right? Like, that kind of thing. Right. But exactly. it's it's respecting the individual opinion of everyone around me, as opposed to me, the tyrant, saying, "I'll play my music all fucking night, and there's nothing you can do about it." End of story. Right. Which is the opposite of liberty. Right. Liberty isn't getting your way. Liberty is being allowed to talk about what you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge difference when it comes to freedom of expression. I think, though, like, then that's maybe part of the problem with emergency acts and things like that is there's, there comes a time where the leaders of a country or organization or whatever it is have to act decisively and there's going to be costs to those decisions, right? And it's then democracy works on a long scale, but it's in emergency situations that it, I think, well, I think we've already seen that it really seems to stumble, mm-hmm. right? Because elections can't be happening every day, but emergency decisions need to be. That to me falls again into the heart thing. It's there's really no good answer. I don't think. No. I think again, this is a more macro observation on the liberal soul. Is that someone like me, who I'm calling a liberal soul, and I think for all intents and purposes, you are too. Although, right. I, I know you don't protest <laughs> at the name. Um, well, no, no, no. I I can uh, you know classical. There, there, there are always right. these kind of incongruities in what you might call a final logic. Right, like yes. there isn't an actual best answer. No, problem, no, no, no. But, right? but these are, but these are, uh, you know, maps of meaning that yeah. we create. One, sure, so. yeah. But I think <laughs> the liberal soul. What I'm saying is, like, I'm super. I'm, I'm temperamentally okay with how much work has to be done to figure out the mess. I'm not left terrified one way or the other over things like what counts as harm and what's an emergency act and when's it good for. I, I don't immediately hear those kind of words and say oh my gosh we got to figure out this problem for all of time and like these are unsolvable problems in the final analysis but human life has to go on and i think john stuart mill even makes this point like because human life has to go on we do our best and most of the time we settle things to the level of human affairs that's kind of the goal is that this kind of again we're i'm bringing in some adam gotnick philosophy of like there's no real final answer in a liberal society. No, there you can't. You can't hope for that. Well, the, literally, if there was, then we would go back to the problem where we, if we had a final answer, we'd become lazy, and if anyone criticized the final answer, we wouldn't even know how to defend it, and it would descend into nothingness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say the liberal soul isn't about being; it's about becoming. And there's ah, never, yes, there's never, that. there's never an end. It's, it's no, like I'm going to be changing. I'm going to be changing and growing until I die. Yeah. And part of why I think On Liberty by John Stuart Mill is so important is like, unless you have some of these principles in place in your society, that changing and growing and becoming will be a living hell for not just the really thoughtful, intelligent people in your society, but actually for most if not everyone, because yeah, even, they'll be fighting against the entire zeitgeist. Even the people who are in charge of the zeitgeist or the influencers, they're also not getting the full gamut of no. human experience through having to talk about their opinions in an open forum. <laughs> so it's just exactly. terrible. The point is, without liberty, it's actually terrible for everyone. <laughs> not just, <laughs> not, yes, just true, the, true. not just the minority people or like the minority of an opinion. Yeah. So I just thought there were a couple funny examples he gave about like, he goes through all the reasons why Mormonism is crazy and it's a pretty new religion <laughs> at his time, but he still defends them. 
yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff, and and believe. And that was so God. contemporary for him, right? There's yeah. this crazy. Well, not okay. I don't. I don't want to say crazy. There's this uprising of a new faith in America that no one has kind of seen anything like this before in America, or even really since Anglicanism. And so it's it's a very it was a huge cultural moment. I think that mm-hmm. people underestimate how interesting. I think Scientology would be a good example of our modern age of a, of something coming up that just doesn't make sense to us. Yeah. And then trying to figure out which parts of it are weird and quirky and eccentric and, and nonsense, which again, oh, and this is something I should have pointed out. John Stuart Mill doesn't say you can't like complain about people being stupid or you can't like right. I think, no, no, no. remonstrate or, or tell them that they're being stupid. It's just about coercion. He's talking about you yes. can't coerce people. Oh, so yeah. I think, you can I think say whatever you want about with Scientology, he'd be very much like, the south park angle of just ripping it a new one but like but then again the harder cases with that which again hard cases are fine if you're the liberal soul is when is harm and abuse happening and this is not obviously this is not a simple question like okay are sister wives in mormonism being abused while they say they want it are they being brainwashed how how much do we want to weigh religious freedom versus mental inexactness in raising young people right like yeah i don't know the best you can do is make laws <laughs> and vote on them and, and then then maybe repeal them if you don't like them right yeah i think that's like that's kind of when you reach a a, a pragmatic limit <laughs> of exactly of these kind exactly. of questions so um yeah that's all that's all john Sturbill. but i wanted to ask you before we sum up there was one other question that occurred to me about this essay, because there's a few different parts, and this was a this was a critique I heard from a friend that I hadn't really thought about because I didn't pay much attention. But there's a few different parts of the essay where John Stuart Mill is like a little bit, I guess, dismissive of other cultures as not being able to have liberty because they're just not <laughs> evolved enough. Now, right. sure, there's an there's like there's an element of the way he writes about like the quote unquote non civilized parts of the world it's very much kind of like of that 19th century era that doesn't ring very well to our modern tastes and senses of how we would write about people who don't live in our country or have different skin color than us or are from different cultural backgrounds. So I think he's not the only great writer from that era to be in. There there, there was a pretty, I mean, this is, I guess here's what I would say on that topic that I find interesting, right? Is that, when you're in your own time, he, he's writing about liberty and he's talking about freedom of thought and all of these things. And these are all like absolutely the most fundamental and essential political realities that we have to protect from a political philosophy perspective, but also, as he points out, from a human like well-being perspective because our lives are so much richer than we have that liberty, right? But we don't know the assumptions we just have that we just have, right? And he didn't either. Right. It was as if it was so assumed that the British people or the British Empire, the English speaking people, as as Churchill called them, were superior culturally Mm -hmm. that he didn't even question it. And yet he was always on about questioning everything. Right. And (laughs) and it's interesting. Right. I think it's always important. Like you said, the liberal soul is always learning. There's always a new facet of what we inherently believe to be true to be wrong. And, and unless we're willing to, to question all of our presuppositions, every single one, whatever they may be, 
we may we are question them, but and this is the, the great tension paradox: question them, but still have them. Mm-hmm. And maybe you need to replace them. But if you're going to replace them, don't just don't just annihilate all of your presuppositions. Then you're going to walk. Then you're not going to be able to function in the world. You need that <laughs> structure to do so. But you also, in paradox, have to be willing to question every one of them, and you have to live in that tension. That's the liberal soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I have a a question, or, or no, maybe I have an observation, but I want to ask it as a question first. Like, yeah, okay, I'm willing to sideline some of his British chauvinism or what, or or you know, Anglo chauvinism in there because I think that that was common of the time, even of the best-hearted people. I think John Turmill shows that. What I'm curious about, though, is um, <laughs> maybe more controversially, like, do you think he had a point? Like, do you think that some oh, cultures are better or worse for liberty? Because, well, I, <laughs> well, either dig your grave here or somewhere else. <laughs> I don't know. I guess, here's what I'll say. What do you here's think? I think that it depends on what you mean by the word culture, right? Mm. If culture is your gender or your skin color or, you know, your faith practices. Uh, no, I don't think I agree with that. But if culture is the institutions by which your people are governed, if it is the uh, methodology of your political, the political rights that your people have, and if it is maybe the rule of law, if those are cultural, then I would say, yes, I think they are superior, vastly. Oh, yeah, yeah, not even superior. No, no, I didn't even mean superior. I meant, I think the Enlightenment, the Scottish Enlightenment, the American one, yeah. there's nothing specifically civilizational about them. By that, I mean, it's not... No, I agree. The, the, ideas, wow. the ideas of the Enlightenment are universalizable. They can be adopted by peoples across the Similar world. Similar to the Renaissance. Yeah, exactly. So I just think he actually made a conceptual error in as much as he was a chauvinist. I just think... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> now, maybe strong. maybe he just wasn't in an era of history to see beyond that chauvinism, where we're in an era of history where we can't see beyond our own. You know, this is water blind spots. Yes. But I just found myself disagreeing with his thesis on that. It was like, well, of course, I'm, t- you know, he writes, I'm talking about the civilized peoples of the world who have the kind of cultural attitudes of liberty. And I was like, well, I've been to a few, well, okay, here's an example. Do the people of Hong Kong not have that sentiment? It seems to me like they do, right? (laughs) No, no, Uh, no. That's what I mean. I just don't think, I I think that he's completely and utterly wrong on the, I think, I think he mixed up race and things like that with institutions, right? I think he thought that there were institutions that were inherent to a certain race, and that's bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but and so you're right. I think he made a conceptual error. Mm-hmm. But I think he's right that the institutions are better. It's just what makes them better is, like you said, universal, universalizable. Well, yeah. I mean, you can see development in in um, countries like Japan or South Korea that have adopted some of the market. Sure. Every there's tons of African nations like that too. India, mm-hmm. you know, it's up. Yeah, I mean, I just think it comes down to good ideas are good ideas, and 
culture. And that's what we should. That's what we should be doing. We're not dividing <laughs> one another into these groups of yeah. cultures in which we say, "Oh no, because it's my culture, it doesn't matter whether it's a good idea or not." Well, I mean, it's things like um, Sam Harris has a great line where it's like, "The Christians in, uh, discovered the laws of physics, but we don't talk about Christian physics, right?" Or, no. The Muslims discovered algebra, but we don't say Muslim algebra. I think in that vein, you know, it just becomes physics. It just becomes algebra in that vein, even though, let's say, if we wanted to really pinpoint it, the Scots invented free markets and liberty. There's no such thing as Scottish liberty. I mean, there isn't an old timey sense. And I'm just saying, I think that that needs to be transcended. I think liberty is, it's human liberty. Universal. Yeah, Yeah, it's universal liberty. So summing up on liberty, John Stuart Mill, if freedom of opinion is anything, it's freedom to think differently. Censorship makes us stupid because we're not allowed to think new thoughts. And And we're not allowed to think new thoughts. We don't hear new thoughts. And if we don't accept people who have different thoughts, then we can't actually even defend our own thoughts. Yeah. And then we go into a malaise where different interest groups can just tell us what to do. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> so yeah, like um what was your like a final thought on reading this essay that you haven't said yet if you have one? Um it was a bit encouraging to remember that, you know, this thought is not liberty and needs to always be protected by a very rigorous intellectual defense. And liberty's not the natural order of I think humanity, and I think tyranny is more natural to our animal selves. If you look at the animal kingdom, tyranny reigns basically supreme. And so I think this is actually a, similar to fire, our use of fire or anything else. This is a this is a human, this is a Promethean moment, like you said, which I love. And if we're not, <laughs> if we're allowing that Promethean moment to escape us, my fear is that we can't, we will not be able to reach our potential um, <laughs> as humans. And that would just be tragic if we if we died on this rock. Mm-hmm. Hey, we we need to get out to the, the, the. What is the purpose of progress in my mind? It's to go out there for long enough and well enough to figure out as much of what you and I are just discussing as we can. What is the optimization of human consciousness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, mean, I think that's only possible with liberty of, and individuals. <laughs> I mean, there's like a ton in this that we haven't even like. We could do another round of points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we could, you could do an episode in every section. I mean, because we didn't even really touch on how John Stuart Mill's principles would would touch upon things like social media censorship. No, no, there's a lot. Yeah, a lot. So a lot. And I, I, by the by, I was gonna ask, what did you think of his notes on education and state? education because <laughs> i feel like you and i've had this conversation before i was like okay yes. the best education is where the government funds it so everyone can get it but then they have nothing to do with it <laughs> oh and i i completely like that that's kind of what life. that's kind of what john Stuart mill ended up talking about i didn't yeah. even think of that but and like, I, and i think he's and you know what sweden is doing i will uh, shout out to sweden they're doing a great job on this uh, with, yeah. the, with the voucher system and i think the whole world should move to the voucher system of course i'm up against the teachers unions and everybody else on that but like the voucher system is the way to go. I hope we get there one day. <laughs> right. Well, I just thought it was funny because it felt very David-esque because he, yeah. <laughs> at, first, at first he wrote, 
yeah, the government needs to be involved in education because people will get left behind and that doesn't yeah. develop a good society either. So I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, oh, Dave's not going to like this part. <laughs> but, <laughs> then he's like... but then, of course, we can't just allow the state to be in control of the education because they'll brainwash everyone and make them stupid too. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God for our mothers for homeschooling us. Yeah, I'm like very- that's that education is another one of those really like thorny. It seems like a paradox, but it's it's, the, it's, it's a messy thing that has to get worked through by like people who are willing to solve problem after problem after problem with a principle in mind. You know, exactly. So Absolutely. yeah, I I feel like after reading this again for like the tenth time, there's about four or five basic points that I feel like should be taught in every high school. Yeah. There, there needs to be a high school, like every 17 year old needs to be exposed to this text in school. You know what I mean? Yes. Like speaking of education uh, and I know Jonathan Haidt, the great American social scientist has a, I don't know if it's a company or a, or a subsidiary. He's like, they made a illustrated version of on Liberty with the major points, like the, freedom of opinion the three different kinds of what opinion does and the individuality that it gives if you allow it and and the kind of decay of your culture if you don't so yeah that was like my thinking and this is like this is this is great to read and in my 30s and i'm of course you are i would say a quite a small minority to have read it when you were 13 (laughs) but i just i think it should be part of the high school curriculum in i agree in every high school in Canada, like, I can't believe we, it's not. Why are we arguing about To Kill a Mockingbird? It's a great book, but we should be talk- we should be talking about liberty. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think again because of potential overreaches of of the state in education, the state doesn't really have an incentive to help its students think about why they're not the best purveyors of education. Yeah, yeah. Right, like there's. uh, I was listening. I love hockey, as you know, and I was listening to a podcast between Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, and Jeff Merrick made a joke about why like hockey interviews are so much more interesting when it's a player talking to another player as opposed to like a podcaster. Right, because they're they're talking the same language. They're similar language and they have the same... And then Elliot Friedman's like, you realize you're advocating for the end of our jobs, right? (laughs) (laughs) And like he said it as a joke, but like it's not a joke in the world. Like this motivation, people are going to... Again, this is something I'm going to talk about later in the podcasts is incentives. And um, so yeah, I, I just... I love what you're doing here, man. Like this, oh, is, uh, this is very good. This is what you were meant to do. You're yeah, a philosopher. I think so. you're, you're a philosopher. So yeah, any listener, um, I would highly encourage reading this essay because if you do, you'll realize how much we didn't talk about today. It's quite yeah. dense. There's so much to it. We could we could have a whole series on this. I agree. I agree. So David, before I let you go, where can the good listeners find you? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I'm all over the place, I guess, but uh, I have a. Uh, podcast with luke called really true fiction and uh we have tons of content there you won't run out there and then i also have another podcast called the canadian story which is um, with another cousin of ours named zach and actually it's uh, interesting because it's a hybrid between music and politics because it's basically zach and i's friends that we just come on and have a kind of fireside chat with about what what they love about canada and uh and what canada could be and it's just yeah it's a it's a fun little i don't know so that one's that one's a really enjoyable, just kind of interview style thing. Whereas more the uh, really true fiction is Luke and I really diving into existential truth. <laughs> yeah, through 
books and movies and TV shows, TV shows predominantly. Yes. So yes, check out the Canadian story and really true fiction, both very entertaining podcasts. Thanks for having me on, Luca. Yeah, of course. Yes. So um, if you are interested in interacting with me, you can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. There's a Facebook group and uh, on Twitter. I managed to make a Twitter this time. Oh, there we go. Because I gave the right birthday. (laughs) I'm not a zero year old. And, uh, And on all major podcasting apps, I'm saying this now without knowing it, but I assume it to be true. And, um, thanks for listening, everyone. You found the liberal soul. Mm -hmm.